With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we are joined by James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forster. We take a look at the 2020 record-setting year in FCPA enforcement. We take a look at the Beam Suntory case and ask how things could go so sideways between the SEC enforcement to the DOJ. The TI report on international anti-corruption enforcement. Continued debate on DOJ interpretation of agency and others. It's a great episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forrester, for another exploration of the firm's always great monthly newsletter. Today, we're going to take up the October newsletter. Um, and James, um, I have, uh, as, as I think everyone knows, Goldman Sachs settled in October, and I've had numerous podcasts on that. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to forego Goldman Sachs on this podcast recording with you and go into some of the other topics that uh, you guys discuss in your newsletter. That's fine, Tom, but we also have to forego talking about Michigan football because October, as it often does, starts with such great expectation and leads to so much heartbreak. So we'll skip that topic as well. All right. Fair enough. Um, James, just a stunning FCPA record settlement year. Um, I guess in November 2016, December 2016, people had asked, uh, would the last year of the Trump administration be the biggest year in FCPA settlements ever? Uh, that would not have been a yes for many people, but it really, to me, demonstrated, number one, the professionalism of the FCPA unit and the fraud section within the Department of Justice, and also the the ongoing global fight against uh, bribery and corruption. What, what did you see from this record-setting year? I agree with both of those uh, points you just made entirely, Tom. We we actually predicted that when President Trump was elected. You know, a lot of people had said because he had said some negative things about the FCPA in the past um, and various times popped up that he'd like to get rid of the FCPA. A lot of people were predicting that there would be maybe even an abolition of the FCPA, but you know, certainly a downturn in FCPA enforcement. And, and our prediction was that wouldn't happen. Um, and for exactly the reasons you said, uh, number one, when I started at the FCPA unit, there were three of us that were full-time dedicated to FCPA enforcement. There were more people who were part-time, but there were three of us full-time. They now have over 30 at DOJ and over 30 at SEC. So you just have a lot of people whose job it is to, to do FCPA enforcement. And number two, I think that the other factor you raised is exactly right. This is no longer just a U.S. thing. This is a global thing. Um, there is more cooperation now uh, than there ever has been. Other countries are involved, sharing evidence with the United States, the United States helping them bring cases. So you know, there was a good chance that if uh, 
if by any chance FCPA enforcement fell off in the U.S., it would be picked up elsewhere. And and sure enough, you know, we I don't always get every, all my predictions right, but this is one we did get right. FCPA enforcement did not fall off. And in fact, um, as you mentioned, uh, 2019 and 2020 set consecutive records in terms of total FCPA settlement amounts recovered by the United States. Now, there's a little bit of fuzzy math in there because some of these um, uh, penalties actually went to foreign law enforcement authorities and got credited against the DOJ um, resolutions, things like that. But even if you take all those out, even if you credit everything to um, you don't count what was credited to foreign law enforcement and just what's paid the U.S., in 2019, there was about $2.65 billion in FCPA settlements. And through the end of October of 2020, we had $2.66 billion. So again, uh, another record set. There, there are a couple of interesting things about that. Number one, those numbers were set with fewer cases. So there were actually, in terms of the number of companies that entered into enforcement actions, the number was down. Um, but the value of the resolutions was way up, just um, you know, kind of an inflation of FCPA resolutions. Um, so even though the, the amounts are up, some have argued that the enforcement is down, but I think that's not, that, that, that's really kind of a false equivalency. I mean, historically, there are so few in the grand scheme of things, FCPA enforcement actions that whether there's 10 one year and eight the next or 15 the next isn't that big of a deal. But we do see the numbers keep going up. And so it's, that is a clear sign that FCPA enforcement is still here and it's here to stay. Uh, James, we had a really interesting case that also I've been, been very interested to visit with you on Beam Suntory. And what made this case interesting for, I think, many uh, uh, in the commentariat world was that we had an SEC resolution with this company a couple of years ago. And then two years later, we have a DOJ resolution yet. Um, uh, the uh, penalty seemed to be higher in the DOJ resolution. And I was wondering if you could just kind of walk us through this case. Yeah, this was a, a very interesting one for me. I, I, I mean, for the most part, in almost all cases, DOJ and SEC try to resolve parallel investigations and at the same time. You know, a couple times we've seen a little bit of a delay, but this was two years, um, which is a, a very large delay. So it's it very unusual in that regard. Um, and from the paperwork, it seems to be in DOJ's mind, the company's fault. And in particular, they, they cited two things in the resolution paperwork that um, seems to blame the company for the delay between the SEC resolution and the DOJ resolution. Uh, number one, DOJ said there were significant delays caused by the company in reaching a timely resolution and its refusal to accept responsibility for several years. That's a direct quote. So DOJ says the company you know, refused to accept responsibility and caused a, a huge delay in the resolution. And number two, and I found this one particularly interesting, and this is a direct quote again, the company did not seek to coordinate a parallel resolution with SEC and DOJ. That just strikes me as so interesting because I didn't, to, to have it explained that way that it's the company's obligation to coordinate a parallel resolution is just strange. 
because in my experience, DOJ and SEC are conducting their own investigations, parallel investigations, but they're they're doing it together and they're talking, they're you know learning the facts together, they're interviewing witnesses at the same time, they're receiving documents at the same time, they're meeting with a company at the same time. They do go off their own ways to negotiate the resolution separately, but generally both sides know, you know, where they are in the process so that they can try to release it at the same time. And so to fault the company for not seeking to coordinate that parallel resolution was a very interesting way to put it. Um, I don't know the behind the scenes thing. I mean, if you, if you take DOJ its words, it, it may have been that the company was willing to accept um, that it had violated uh, the civil aspects of the FCPA, but had not create a, committed a criminal act. And maybe that's just where they had a sticking point and it took a long time for them to come to terms on an agreement that there was not only a civil violation, but a criminal violation as well. And long story short, we didn't get into the, the facts, but this, this involved um, Chicago-based uh, distillery company, liquor company, um, and its uh, efforts to sell products in India. So very interesting delay there, uh, and, and maybe something we won't see in other cases. James, next up, we had a, a report from Transparency International with, um, I believe they call it the, uh, uh, well, it was their annual report, which showed a dip in global bribery enforcement. Uh, I guess that was uh, different than I had anticipated uh, because I thought uh, globally uh, anti-corruption and anti-bribery enforcement was up. And I thought it was the, uh, once again, a, a leading year for that. But uh, what did you guys see in the TI report? So I do still continue to believe, Tom, that overall global enforcement is up. I mean, certainly compared to when I started in the FCPA unit in 2009. So I think this is all relative to begin with. But what Transparency International, they looked at the enforcement records of the um, the member nations of the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention and tried to look for trends. And what TI concluded in their October 2020 report was that fewer of the world's biggest exporters are actively investigating and punishing companies paying bribes abroad. The report um, called out a number of countries as the worst offenders. TI said that Canada, China, Hong Kong, India, Japan, Mexico, the Netherlands, and South Korea had the worst track records for um, foreign bribery enforcement, while Germany, Italy, and Norway had had seen dips. Um, interesting, you know, it, to your point, the Netherlands was involved in some of the Lava Jato investigations and prosecutions. I, I, I'm kind of with you. It surprised me that they would be in TI's naughty list, but there they were. But it wasn't all bad. Um, TI found that France and Spain had improved their performance, and they found that four countries uh, were actively enforcing the foreign bribery laws, the United States, not surprisingly, the UK, Switzerland, and Israel. So it was a bit of a mixed bag, but overall, you know, TI was a little bit negative on the trend since 2018. TI did make a number of recommendations to try to reverse the downward trend. Uh, they, as you often hear from the OECD working group, um, recommended that companies strengthen their laws and enforcement systems to help them handle complex international corruption cases. Uh, they recommended that countries increase liability of parent companies 
for the actions of their subsidiaries. Pretty interesting um, proposal there. And they also um, recommended that um, countries end secrecy and ownership of companies. Um, as we all know, shell companies and uh, are, make enforcement of any financial crime very difficult, including foreign bribery investigations. Tom, I, I forgot. I, I forgot to answer one of your questions about Beam Suntory. You asked about the money and how it reflected it, and I just wanted to to answer your question directly because I I forgot to do so. Long story short, was ordinarily DOJ uh, would not seek disgorgement when when there's an SEC um, in resolution, an SEC wouldn't seek um, a civil penalty when there's a DOJ resolution, but DOJ basically said, because you you failed to uh, uh, coordinate a parallel resolution, we're not going to give you any credit for what you paid, paid SEC. Again, very unusual situation. I, I didn't want to go without um, answering your question there, Tom. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> Out of order. Out of order. Still works. Um, next up, James, uh, we had kind of continued, uh, if not academic debate, uh, legal debate around the uh, – agency theory under the FCPA. Of course, uh, Hoskins is the prominent case. But we had uh, in the Second Circuit a couple of uh, amici, and I never get to say amici, because uh, I never have plural amicus, briefs filed. Uh, and I just wondered, kind of from your perspective, do did they uh, bring up anything new? And if, if I could cite to them coming from uh, the newsletter, it was first the International Academy of Financial Crime Litigators who argued that the DOJ's definition was inconsistent with the common meaning of the word uh, in the FCPA context, which they said meant fixer. Uh, I was a little perplexed by that. But then the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, uh, I thought, made a more straightforward argument, at least that uh, the word agent should be construed narrowly uh, because of the presumption against extraterritoriality. Did you see anything really new or different in either of those amicus briefs? Yeah, the, the very interesting thing to me here is that if you go back to the Hoskins case, um, Second Circuit says, you know, Hoskins can't be uh, charged as a conspirator unless he was an agent of somebody who could be charged as a conspirator. In, in this case, the, uh, the U.S. subsidiary of Alstom. And so there was a debate at trial about, you know, what does it mean to be an agent for the purpose of the FCPA? The interesting thing was Hoskins and DOJ agreed that the term agent in the FCPA should be based on the, – the court should use the common law definition of the word agency. Now, they disagreed a little bit about what the common law definition was, but at a fundamental level, they both agreed that the term agent should be interpreted according to the common law definition. Both of these, Amakai and Miki, whatever you call them, um, actually rejected that position. And they both said that, that um, the Second Circuit should not use the common law definition of agent because it's way too broad. And so what they both argued essentially is that the term agent should be interpreted uniquely to the FCPA to reflect the FCPA legislative history and or the OECD anti-bribery convention. 
Um, and so that leads to, for example, uh, the one brief arguing, look, when they passed the FCPA, they didn't mean agent under the common law. They meant it was just going to be a fixer and somebody who does bad things. The other one argues that um, if you go back to the legislative history and you look at the OECD convention, agents were, were distinguished from employees and they really meant third-party consultants and sales agents. Um, so it's very, I mean, even Hoskins, the defendant, agreed it should be common law agency. These two briefs say, no, that's completely wrong. You should use a very specific definition of the word agency, agent, for the purpose of the FCPA, and they try to come up with a way to define it in a way that would be helpful to criminal defendants. Um, so it, it's a little bit different. It's interesting. Um, one thing I do find kind of ironic um, is that maybe skipping ahead to, to the next newsletter, but the OECD phase four evaluation of the United States came out and they actually said, um, the, the examiners there actually suggested that the Hoskins decision limited the ability of DOJ to bring conspiracy charges in the FCPA context um, violates the OECD convention, which is exactly what DOJ had argued uh, in the first round of Hoskins what ha was, was the case, and the court rejected that. But the OECD basically said, yeah, that's true. Um, if you don't let DOJ charge people uh, as co-conspirators, you're violating the convention. So it's very interesting. I, the reason I raise that is you have defense attorneys as amici saying the OECD convention says you got to interpret this thing really narrowly. And then you got the OECD examiner saying, Look, you're you're uh, in order to in order to um, the the amici are saying you have to uh, interpret the word agent narrowly to be in line with the OECD convention, but then you have the OECD examiner saying, look, this really narrow definition of who can be a co-conspirator violates the OECD convention. So it's very interesting. Uh, it'll be very it'll be fascinating to see how this this pans out. Uh, you know, it's a very difficult very difficult issue. I mean, if there's any kind of um, legislative will, it would be great for Congress to go in there and just make clear what they mean by agent, because I do think that these uh, amici have a good point to the extent that you know, I've tried to analyze what it means to be an agent under the common law, and every case you read says this is a fact-bound determination that changes you know, in each case, and that's a very difficult way to do criminal prosecution. So, right. you know, it would be it would be good to get some clarity here. Long story short. Uh, well, hopefully we'll get some from the Second Circuit. Um, yeah. The um, the last uh, article or point I, uh, um, from the newsletter I wanted to raise with you, James, is about China contemplating changes to commercial robbery law. And I raise this because uh, I was one of the leading uh, advocates back in 2013, 2014, that with the GlaxoSmithKline case, GSK in China, mm -hmm. we potentially could see a large number or, or a uh, number of enforcement actions against Western companies based upon uh, Chinese domestic law. And I was wondering, and that did not uh, pan out or did not turn out at all. Uh, but I was wondering if you would see these potential changes as uh, pointing in that direction, or is it uh, really something uh, separate and apart? No, it's a great it's a great point you raised, Tom. Um, so we always try to to we're not Chinese lawyer. Well, I'm not a Chinese lawyer. Um, 
we have seen our firm, but I'm not one. Um, but we always like to, you know, pay attention to what China's doing with its anti-corruption laws because it could signal increased enforcement, which could have a ripple effect. Um, here, uh, the thing that we really focused on in, in the newsletter was um, changes to the commercial bribery statute. Uh, and in particular, this would be a, a change that would have harsher punishment for um, people who accept bribes in the commercial bribery context. So not bribe payers, but bribe receivers. Um, it increases the penalties uh, and and kind of sets out some sentencing guidelines for that perspective. And and so just trying to get behind you know, what's motivating that. It may be that China is seeing increased uh, commercial bribery and that they may start to crack down on commercial bribery, not only the bribe payers, which was already in the law as well, but the bribe receivers as well. And so, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of state-owned enterprises in China. That's always going to be a huge risk area. But in some ways, China saying, look, even when we do have private companies, um, we're going to start cracking down on uh, bribery in the commercial context as well. And so, again, this is kind of trying to read the tea leaves, but uh, companies doing business in China should pay attention to that potential increase in enforcement. Uh, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. We're going to link to the firm's newsletter in the show notes. And I look forward to seeing what you guys come up with uh, in the next couple of newsletters, James. Thanks for having me, Tom. Great to be here. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast and iTunes as would help us increase our rankings and expanding our listener base for the oldest podcast in compliance. If you have any questions you'd like explored on this podcast, please send them to me as well, or you can leave them on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up another issue in FCPA and compliance. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.